Do you know why Black Friday is called Black Friday? It's not because the stores open up before the streetlights come on, or they open up in the middle of the night when you usually or possibly rather be sleeping. It's a term that originated in the Philadelphia area, and it was used to describe the day when the stores went from being in the red to in the black, and when their businesses were finally profitable. And it didn't really become a major shopping day until 2001 when it was dubbed Black Friday, I guess nationally. And since that time, it has grown to be one of the biggest shopping days of the year. And people will wait for months or even a year for these deals to buy whatever it is that they're wanting to get their hands on. There are a lot of great deals if you do your research. And if you don't mind giving up sleep, giving up family time, or being surrounded by other frenzied shoppers. Did any of you find any good deals this past Friday? I found one on Saturday. It was unfortunate. I found a great deal on a pair of sandals that Hannah and I both have, and are, they're both getting a little thin. And this summer, we mentioned we should get new ones. But being stingy like I am, I said, ah, oh, they'll be fine. We'll be okay. And I opened my email to find out on Saturday that Friday they had a 70% off sale on these very sandals, and I missed it. <laughs> I missed it because apparently you're not thinking about wearing sandals when it's snowing outside or when it's wet and cold in November. I didn't remember the great need that I had for new sandals, and I wasn't thinking about it. I didn't remember how much I needed that deal. There were other things on my mind that seemed to be more important. And this is why businesses spend so much money on advertising, because they want you to understand how perfect your life could be if you just had whatever product it was they were advertising. You could get by without it, but you wouldn't be living your best life. It wouldn't be to the fullest extent that you could live. You could get by without it, but you'd be missing out. And nobody wants to miss out, do they? They convey a sense of urgency and they reveal a need to you that you otherwise wouldn't be aware of. Or maybe they convince you that you actually have a need that really isn't even a need. But if you don't see the need to act, you're never going to act. You'll never take action. In Revelation 3, Jesus is writing to a church that is pretty well off. They thought they had everything that they needed. They didn't have any needs. They were content to keep living the same life that they've always lived. And even though they weren't aware of any needs that they had, Jesus was. And Jesus writes to let them know of their great need. In this letter, he exposes their need. And he tells them of a bargain that's too good to pass up. And he also calls them to action. I invite you to open your Bibles with me and stand as you're able as I read Revelation 3, beginning at verse 14. This letter to the church, this letter from Jesus Christ to this church. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And again, reading in Jesus' name. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, 
so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father God, these are your words. Your word is truth. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth, that your truth would speak to our hearts, convict us of sin, Lord, but also convict us of what you have done for us as well. Remove any distractions that we have from us here this morning and help us, Father, to see Christ and him crucified for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Jesus has a message for this church. But before he gets to this message, he wants them to know who this message is coming from. And so he identifies himself in verse 14. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus here is laying out his credentials for what he is about to say to this church. He is the amen. He is true. And what he says, so it is. He speaks truth always. He can only ever speak truth. He is the faithful and the true witness. Means he calls it as he sees it. And not just as he sees it, but how he sees it is how it truly is. He can't be bribed to describe something else. He doesn't just share his perspective, but he shares these actions as they truly are. He is the beginning of the creation of God. Not in the sense that he is the first created being of God. That's heresy. That's been condemned by the church for centuries. But in the sense that he is the source of creation. As John writes, and in him all things came into being. Jesus has every right then to say what he is about to say. And what he says is truth. Again, he can say no other. He's going to give this church an honest assessment, whether they like it or not. Laodicea was an affluent society. They were the wealthiest city in their region. They had a medical school that was known for its eye ointment and for its ear ointment. They had flocks of sheep with beautiful black wool and garments that were made from this wool. They were doing all right for themselves. What more could they possibly want? They had it all. And to top it all off, they had a church. And this church was a church that even Paul cared for. Even Paul wrote letters to this church. The Apostle Paul had worked hard to encourage them with the true knowledge of Christ. And to show the members of this church that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The people of this church could look back to their Christian heritage and tell everyone how much Paul cared for them. You remember the Apostle Paul? Yeah, he cared about us. He wrote to us. He called us out by name in the book of Colossians. This church must have been pretty important. After all, they were the church in Laodicea. But look at how Jesus describes them. Jesus doesn't remind them of their greatness. He doesn't compliment them on how well they're doing in life. Jesus describes them with these words, you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And the worst part was, they didn't have a clue. 
The worst part was they thought they were okay. They had found security in their reputation, security in their wealth, security in their medicine, security in their church attendance, their church membership, security in their economy, security in the clothes that they had on their backs. They were secure by all earthly standards, yet Jesus still calls them wretched. Jesus sees beyond the externals, and he sees their hearts, and he sees their deeds, and he assesses their deeds. He tells them in verse 15, I know your deeds. You're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. And I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. They're about to be chewed up and spit out. But what were their deeds? What was it that they were doing that was so repulsive to Jesus? Why doesn't he just tolerate them for a little bit longer? Why was he about to spit them out and to reject them? And the reason being is they're apathetic. They're apathetic because they didn't need anything. They had everything. What more could they possibly need? They were safe and secure. Their actions are lukewarm. Apparently, the sin that they had in their lives wasn't too big a problem for them. It wasn't anything that they couldn't handle on their own. And the fact that they were sinners and they were still sinners doesn't seem to bother them. After all, they belonged to a church. They belonged to the church at Laodicea of all churches. And they had all their earthly needs met. And they were wealthy. So what's the big deal? Can you find any problems with this church? With this congregation? Do you understand why Jesus would call them out and say, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth? They were self-righteous and believed that they could solve their own problems. Their lukewarm deeds pointed out that they truly, what they truly believed about themselves and what they truly believed about Christ. They didn't need a Savior, at least not too badly. They were good enough, as is. They didn't need any help. They didn't need any assistance. And they failed to recognize that Christ doesn't tolerate the self-righteous sinner. Christ isn't a backup plan for when times get tough. He is the only one who can deal with your sin. And he is the only savior. He is the only redeemer. And you are either saved and redeemed by Christ or you are not saved. You are not redeemed. How easy it is for us to fall into this same trap. So long as there aren't any major crises going on in our lives or in the lives of loved ones, Jesus can take a back seat for a while. We'll take him out when we need him. But right now we're, we're good to go. What possible needs do we have that we can't meet ourselves? After all, it's not like we need him as much as we need a nice, comfortable life here, right? And we get a little lukewarm. We're lukewarm because we fail to see how great our need truly is. We neglect to think about a holy God who has promised to condemn sin in the flesh, a holy God who doesn't wink at sin and doesn't let sin go by unpunished. We neglect to think about it, that, or else we don't really believe it. Or if we recognize the problem, we think that we can do something about it, that we'll solve it ourselves, that we can meet our own needs, that we can buy our own clothing, we can buy our own ointment, we can make our own wealth. We don't need Jesus every day. Maybe once in a while we'll take him. These Laodiceans, and perhaps maybe even you today, 
failed to recognize that Christ is about to spit out these self-reliant and apathetic church members. Jesus reveals the honest assessment about this church that they have decided themselves, or they've deceived themselves into thinking they're fine, when in reality they are not. They're miserable wretches who don't even see their need. And they belong to a church, but they were still in their sin. And they are perfectly content to stay just as they are. Jesus doesn't leave this church hanging. He sees their problem. And he offers to them a solution for their problem. In verse 18, he says, Buy gold from me, and I'll make you rich. Buy white garments, and you'll be clothed. Ointment and, uh, for your eyes so you can see. These poor, naked, and blind people, how are they supposed to buy gold? Where are they supposed to come up with enough funds to buy this gold that will make them rich? How are they to pay for their white garments and their ointments? Where can they turn? What do they have to offer Jesus for these priceless gifts? He's already identified everything they have to their name. Miserable, poor, wretched, blind, naked. We're tempted to start digging into our pockets to find something of worth to offer Christ. We know our checkbooks won't cut it, but perhaps, maybe our actions will. Or perhaps we can maybe buy this, these things on credit that we can make it up to God. Perhaps we could give him something of real worth, of, of true value. Our hearts, our lives, our homes, our time. And we offer these things to the Lord as though they would be such a treasure to him. As though these things are such a gift. But how has Christ described these people? And how does Christ describe all people apart from him? What kind of gifts are wretched, poor, miserable, blind, naked, self-righteous sinners? I love how Bo Geertz describes the gift of one's heart in his book, The Hammer of God. He writes this, he says, One does not choose a redeemer for oneself, you understand, nor give one's heart to him. The heart is a rusty old can on a junk heap, a fine birthday gift indeed. But a wonderful Lord passes by and has mercy on that wretched tin can. He sticks his walking cane through it and rescues it from the junk pile and takes it home with him. That's how it is. Our hearts aren't worthy gifts. They're not going to pay back the tremendous gift which we have received our lives aren't adequate payments for the righteous white garments that he freely gives to us. Our homes and our time aren't able to pay the price for the salve to make us see. And the moment that we think we have something to offer God is the moment that we become fools, completely ignoring how great our need is. That you are the wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked sinner in need of clothing, in need of gold, in need of sight. No retailer would even let you into the store in that condition. We have nothing to offer God. And yet God desires to clothe you. And God comes to you with an offer too good to be true. He wants to open your eyes. 
He wants to make you rich. And so again, he makes a bargain with you. As God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, he says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. He offers to you his gold refined by fire, his gold that will make you rich. He offers to you his garments to clothe you, his garments that don't run out or fade away or grow thin, his garments that will clothe your shame and your shame will not be revealed, but instead dealt with, that you would be pure and holy. And he offers to you salve to open your eyes so that you might see your true condition and the real condition of your heart and of your sin. And all of these offers he gives to you free of charge, a true bargain, one that's too good to pass up. He makes a bargain with us because these gifts have already been paid for. They were paid for on a different Black Friday, on a Friday that we call good, when the word of God made flesh, was crucified with himself, your sin, and your self-righteousness, which is unrighteousness, when he crucified to himself your blindness and your poverty, your wretchedness and your pride and your own arrogance, your own apathy as well. A good Friday when Christ took it upon himself so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A good Friday that will forever stand as a reminder of your own unworthiness and a reminder of Christ's goodness and Christ's payment for you. You see, Christ isn't a backup plan. He's the only plan. He is our Savior, and he is our Redeemer. These were the gifts that were being offered to this church in Laodicea. These gifts are being offered to you this morning as well. As Christ comes to you through his word, he calls you to action. Because this bargain doesn't stand forever. But this bargain is available to you today, as today is a day of grace for you. Before Jesus issues a call to action for this church, he reveals his purpose for such stern words. He says this, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Jesus assures the church of his love, assures them of the confidence to respond, giving them confidence to respond. Be zealous. And repent, because I love you. And because this is what I desire for you. I want you to live. I don't want to spit you out of my mouth. Always be zealous and repent at once. Repent of your lukewarm apathy and your self-righteousness. Acknowledge your poverty, your nakedness. And be clothed with Christ. And this is where the zeal comes from. When we recognize our own wretchedness. When we recognize our own unworthiness. And when we see the tremendous price that Christ has paid for you so that you might be rich, Christ calls to all of those whom he loves to come to him for spiritual wealth, for spiritual sight, for spiritual clothing, and to be wealthy, to see, and to be clothed for all eternity. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
to the lukewarm church in Laodicea, Jesus is standing at the door. He is presently standing at the door, knocking, calling, and waiting graciously. And the Holy Spirit is calling them through the gospel, repent, turn from your sin, and be forgiven by Christ, the everlasting King, the faithful and true, the Amen, comes down from his throne in heaven. And he comes to the beggar's door and is willing to humble himself and knock that the beggar might receive the everlasting king. Think of the grace of God. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. But yet Christ comes and knocks on your heart as well. He comes and he will even wait and knock once, twice, three times, again and again. Will they hear? Will they heed the message that he's just given them? Will they repent and will they respond? Or will they ignore it and turn away and turn him away? He does not wait forever. To those who heed his word, Jesus offers forgiveness, fellowship, and communion. Not for some far off time down the road, but here and now. A daily fellowship with Christ accepting his discipline and repenting of our sins as we walk with him each and every day. And he promises to you a seat with him on his heavenly throne. He promises that we will rule and reign together with Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Savior comes to you today. He comes to you with discipline to point out your self-righteousness. Discipline to point out your lukewarm apathy. Discipline to point out to you that yes, you do have sin and yes, it is a problem more than you can handle on your own. In fact, one that you could never handle. But he comes to you to call you to repentance. He comes to you to offer you his gold that you would be wealthy. His clothing that you would be covered and forgiven. And his salve that you would receive sight. And the everlasting king comes down from his throne to invite you, the beggar, into his fellowship. And today as we begin the celebration of Advent, we remember again and await eagerly the time when Christ comes down from his throne again, this time in judgment, and this time to take all believers home with him. He does not wait graciously forever, but today as you are living and breathing, is a day of grace for you. And he is graciously calling you to repent, to come to him, to be forgiven, and to be saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your words. We thank you for their truth. We thank you, Lord, that you revealed to us our own true miserable condition apart from you. That you are willing to give us these hard words. Help us, Father, not to deceive ourselves, but to accurately and honestly assess ourselves by your true word and by your holy law. And as we see our own true condition, Lord, we acknowledge that we are poor, miserable sinners and that we can do nothing to earn your grace or merit our forgiveness. But Lord, help us to see that you are knocking on our hearts as well, freely coming to offer to us forgiveness, grace, mercy, and salvation. Lord, we thank you for that fellowship that you offer us, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk each and every day in fellowship and in step with you.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.